Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Exodus chapter number 19, the book of Exodus chapter 19 this evening. Thank you for being in your place tonight. Exodus chapter number 19, we are working our way through the book of Exodus on uh, Sunday evenings, and we've come now to Exodus chapter 19. We've spent the last two or three weeks uh, hanging out in this section, this passage, a very, very important passage of Scripture, really the hinge for understanding what takes place throughout the rest of the book. And what we said is about Exodus chapter number 19, there are actually three, maybe three and a half books of the Bible that are committed to helping us understand exactly what takes place in this passage. The Lord has uh, brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. He's delivered them safely from Pharaoh and the Egyptians by bringing them across the Red Sea. What we just heard about in song, where the Lord says to them, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And the Lord parts the water, it's dry ground, the children of Israel cross. Uh, Of course, Pharaoh and his army come in behind them. God says, today you will not see Pharaoh or his men any longer. And man, the walls collapse, the walls of water collapse in on Pharaoh, freeing the children of Israel as a picture of the salvation that God has given to you and to me. He takes them on the other side, and then he provides for them. Then he brings manna down. He drops quail up to their kneecap for them to eat. He tells them, all you got to do is walk outside and pick it up, and you can eat. This is, this is who I am. This is the kind of God that I am. I'm a God who delivers you. I'm a God who brings you to myself. I'm a God who provides for you. Of course, the children of Israel have battle, and God intercedes for them on their behalf there. Over and over, God is doing this for the children of Israel. Then he brings them to Exodus chapter 19, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. What happens in Exodus chapter number 19 is really the precursor for Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is where you have the list of the Ten Commandments. How many have ever heard of the Ten Commandments before? Okay, so Exodus chapter 20 is the list of the Ten Commandments. And it's, it's a very famous passage. In fact, we all go, wow, Exodus chapter 20 is very, very important. But Exodus chapter 19 really sets the stage for what takes place in Exodus chapter 20. And that's where we are right now. And what we've been endeavoring to answer through this entire study is what Pharaoh's question originally was. And remember what Pharaoh asked Moses. And Moses said, God says, let his people go that they may go worship him. And Pharaoh's response to Moses was, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, who is God that I should do what God says that I should do? And of course, God has over and over and over been revealing himself to not just Pharaoh, but to Moses, to the children of Israel. And by way of revealing himself to them, he's revealing himself to us as is recorded in the scripture for us. So the question we're, we're, we're striving to answer is, who is the Lord? Who is the real God? And what should our response to this great, wonderful, powerful, delivering, providing, saving, atoning, miracle working, what should our response to this God 
B, and you got it in your outlines right before, right before we get to point number one. You got a little quote there. And, and here's what we're going to look at tonight. Our God is a God who condescends in coming near to us, but we should never be casual in coming near to Him. So our God is a God who condescends in coming near to us, but we should never be casual in coming near to Him. So we define a couple things, then we'll read the, read the passage and explain it for a little while this evening. First, let me define the word condescend. When you hear the word condescend, you may be tempted to think of someone who is um, patronizing to you. You may, be, you may be tempted to think someone who looks down at you. Someone who thinks they're better than you. But that's not actually what the word condescend means. The, the word condescend, you have the word descend, which means to lower, to come down, to step down. And then you have condescend, which means the way we are lowered or to be lowered with. So when we say the God that we have is a God who condescends to us, what we mean is we have a God who comes near. He stoops down. He lowers himself. He takes a place that is far below his rightful place, and he does that so that he might come near to us. Okay, so you can understand that in the way that maybe you interact with a child or the way you see someone interact with a child. Sometimes a, a little boy or girl come running up to you. They'll want to talk to you. They'll want your attention and they'll pull and they'll pull on your pants legs and they'll pull and they'll pull and say, hey, give me your attention, give me your attention, right? And what do you do? You get down on your knee and you get right in their face and you are lowering yourself. You are condescending to where they are in order to engage with them and hear what it, you know, what it is that they have to say, which is normally like, the sky is blue. And you're like, well, wonderful. Thank you for telling me that. I appreciate it. I didn't know, I didn't know that without you telling me, right? So in that sense, who is our God? Our God is a God who condescends. He comes to us. He stoops down, he lowers himself, and he engages us on his level. You get to the New Testament, here's how it sounds. We draw nigh to God because God first drew near to us. We love him because he first loved us. Right? So, so, so God is the one initiating the conversation. He is the one engaging himself in the relationship. So our God is a God who does not, he does not stand above, even though he is above. He does not stand above, but our God is a God who lowers himself. He condescends to our level. What do we mean when we use the word casual? Our God is a God who condescends and coming near to us, but... We must never be casual in coming near to Him. By casual, I do not mean informal, as in, hey, come over to my house this weekend, and it's a casual event. So you wear casual clothes. Now, nothing to do with, it's nothing to do with what you're wearing. That's not the, that's not the idea. By, by careless or by casual, what I mean is offhand or indifferent or apathetic or unconcerned, or nonchalant, or flippant, right? You can thank the thesaurus for giving me all these, you know, uh, similar words to casual, right? So 
God is a God who condescends. He comes down to us. But our response to God should not be a casual response. It should not be a flippant response. It should not be an offhanded response. It should, should not be an apathetic or indifferent. Oh, oh, well, there's God again. Oh, isn't that neat? Oh, right? That's, that should not be our response to who our God is. You see that no place better than in Exodus chapter number 19. Okay? So that's the setup. Exodus chapter number 19. We're going to start in verse number 7. Okay? We're going to go 7 down to verse number 14. Exodus chapter 19, verse 7 to 14. Let's stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 7, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 19, verse 7, down to verse 14. Okay, so you, you remember verse 5, verse 6, Now therefore, if you obey my voice indeed, keep my covenant, you'll be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Okay, verse 7. And Moses came and called unto the elders of the people and laid before their faces all of these words which the Lord commanded him. All of what words? All the words from verse 6 and upward. Okay? So Moses tells the people exactly what God told him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. That's, that's, a, pretty, that's a pretty quick answer. So verse 8, about halfway through, Moses returns the, the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Well, lo, I am come unto thee in the thick of a cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people un, uh, and Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the pe people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day will the Lord come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about it. He said, put up some markers. Get that, put out a fence. Keep, keep certain, keep them back. Keep them away from the mountain. Saying, I'm in verse 12, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mountain or touch it or, or touch the border of it. So whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. Well that, well, that seems really harsh, don't you think? And there shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mountain. And Moses went down to the mountain unto the people, and he sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. Look down now, verse 16. And it came to pass the third day in the morning, there were thunderings and lightnings and the thick cloud upon the mountain and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all of the people that was in the camp, what's the word? Trembled. So that all the people that was in the camp trembled. So you have loud lightning, you have thunder, you have an earthquake, you have a, you have a trumpet sounding. 
It's getting louder, it's louder, it's nowhere to be seen, but it's getting louder and louder. You have the warning from Moses that if anyone comes even near the mountain, even if they're their dog or their animal or their cat or their whatever, they, they come near the mountain, they touch the mountain, they will surely be struck dead, put to death, right? That's a pretty scary scene. And inside of that scene, you have moms and dads with their boys and girls, you have man, uh, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, right? You can just imagine the scene as God condescends to the mountain to visit it. This is the God of the universe coming down to this place in Exodus 19. And what is their reaction? Their reaction is twofold. Their reaction is first, that they believed. And their reaction is second, that they trembled. Their action is first, that they believed. That's verse number 9. Look at verse number 9. Or, or, or rather, verse number 8. All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. Verse number 9. The Lord said to Moses, Lo, I am come in the thick of the cloud, that the people may hear when I speak and believe. So the, their reaction is twofold. They believe and they tremble. So here's, here's the question. Does your, my, or our response to God match who we say our God is? Does our response to God match who we say our God is? We'll examine that two-way tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Use your word in our hearts and lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. Amen. God is a God who is so massively awesome that if you were to see Him, that you must be put to death. In fact, you'll, you'll read later in a few chapters from this, if you're with us in a few Sunday nights, where Moses says, well, I want to see you. And God says, no man can see me and live, but I'll hide you behind this rock and I'll cover you with my hand and then I'll pass by. And when I do that, that will be enough for you to understand who I am, the, the greatness that is God's awesomeness or, or, or God's eminence or God's, uh, God's glory or God's significance. That's how you might would understand that. So the question is, does our response to God match who we say our God is? So what we say is, our God is the creator of the universe. What we say is, our God is deliverer. He beat death, hell, and the grave. What we say is, our God is eternal in that he has always existed, he currently exists, and that he always will. This is what we say our God is. Does our response to God match who we say our God is? Or is our response to God one that is casual or flippant? Do we make light of? Is it, is it nonchalant in that way? So two ideas. Number one, in your outline, our awesome God. So imagine a very famous or, or rich person who comes and visits your neighborhood. And you find out this very famous person is going up and down the streets of your neighborhood and he's looking for a place to live. He wants to buy 
a house. Okay, it doesn't matter. You think of the most famous person you know. And this person is going up and down your street, and he's just walking around, and he's looking for a place to home, to, to, I mean, looking for a home to buy. And you, you immediately would say, well, why is he trying to buy a house in my neighborhood? Well, why is this uber-rich person trying to buy a home where I live? It's an athlete, maybe it's a, a movie star, whoever it would be. Let's just say that this person buys a house, they move in to your neighborhood. And what would you automatically assume? Right? You would automatically assume that they were after something, right? You would automatically assume, well, why is this very famous person who could live wherever he wants, why is he trying to buy a house in my very normal, very you know, you know, residential, very non-flamboyant, very non-gated, right? Why is he trying to buy a house in my neighborhood? This, this happens all the time. Politicians, right? They, they, presidents, people running for office, what do they do? Right? They always go around to the common people. They get pictures taken. They kiss babies, right? Why? Because that looks good. Every, every president who's ever ran for office has posed with a construction worker hat on their head and they put their arms around other construction workers so that way you see them and you go, wow, this guy is just like me. Right? Okay, maybe not every president in history, but nearly every president in history and at least most recent history, right? Because what you think, wow, this person lives just like I live. They have the same kind of things I have. What are they doing? They're, they're, they're after something, right? You know, let's, let's get your photograph because, look, I really care about the community. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm, really I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a president of the people. I'm a person of the people. I'm very humble. So, so look, I'm normal just like you're normal. And, and in that sense, a president, a politician, whoever may be a king, a queen, right? In that sense, what are they doing? They're, they're condescending in order to get something in return, which is what? Your vote, right? They're condescending in order to get you to vote for them because look how normal they are. They're just like me. But God does not need your vote. Yeah, God is not running for office. That God does, does not need a PR spin machine. God, God needs none of that. Okay? God is not looking for a photo op. That's not Exodus chapter number 19. God isn't showing up in Exodus 19 like, well, let's, let's get a couple selfies so I can like, project this out of how normal of a God I am, how, how approachable I must be, how real and, and into it I am with you know, all the needs of the day. You know, that's a, God doesn't need that. God isn't running for office. God, in fact, God needs nothing. That's what makes him God. God needs nothing. God needs nothing from you. God needs nothing from me. Why? Because God owns everything. God owns everything. God has everything. And God needs nothing. This is, this is a really big word, but it's called eminence. Okay? Like, this is the eminence. You want to see God's eminence? Here it is. Look at verse, um, uh, look at verse number 5. For all the earth is mine. Right? So, so that is a, so 
That's basically, in a nutshell, what the imminence of God is. God needs nothing. God has everything. God owns everything. So why then does God condescend to our level? Why does he come to where we are? And here's the answer. Because you and I are a treasured possession to him. So God condescends, not because he needs something from us, but God condescends because he simply chooses to love us. That's why. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That, that verse, one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, is, is a verse that should cause you and me to step back and see how it is that God condescends to our level, comes down to our level. So you have several ideas. You have number one, or letter A rather, you have God's standing. God stands over it all. God needs nothing. He owns it all. He is the king of it all. And he chooses to set his love on you and me. He chooses to see you and me as his treasured possession. Isn't that a thought? The God of that God of the universe who exists in eternal power, the God who created the immensity, the beauty, the complexity of all of creation, he spoke it into existence that that God chooses to love you and me. That should blow us away. That should cause you to smile even on Sunday night. That is, a, that is an amazing thought. So God's, con, God's standing. Let it be. God's separation. So here's what he tells Moses. Moses, I'm coming down. You go tell the people to get ready. I'm going to show up and you go tell them that they should wash. This is an interesting thing. They should wash everything. You see that in verse number 14? Moses went down from the mountain under the people, sanctified it, and they washed their clothes. Now listen, do not think in terms of washer, dryer, and some downy soap, okay? And they didn't have that. Right? There, was, there, was no, there was no stacking the washer. Like, hey, let's all make our way down to the laundromat. God's showing up. We don't want any stains on our clothes. No, that, that, that wasn't the way it happened for them, right? You remember their complaint a few chapters ago. God, we don't have any water. You, the only reason you brought us out of here was to starve, right? Remember, remember this complaint? God's like, well, I'll lead you to the Palm Springs. I'll, I'll, I'll lead you to the, I look, look what I can do. So it's, chances here, they have to travel back. They have to take all their clothes. They got to wash them all. This is not an easy, this is not an easy request from the Lord. It's, it's easy in our thought, in our minds, we just make our way to the laundry room, open it up, throw it in, put it in, cycle, 45 minutes, come back, take it out, throw it in the dryer, close it, throw some little uh, bouncy sheets in there to keep the static from getting around, you close it up, right, walk away. I call it a bouncy sheet, you can tell how often I actually wash clothes, which is never, okay? And yet here, the same thing. This is not an easy task, and yet, when God shows up, what does he want? With no trace of defilement. 
He wants no trace of defilement. In fact, what he says is, you cannot even touch the mountain. Because in touching the mountain, you should be, must be automatically put to death. It's teaching us something about God. That God and His holiness is no joke. In fact, the seraphims surround the throne of God, even at this very moment. With two wings, they cover their face. With two wings, they cover their feet. With two wings, they do fly. And their chorus, their refrain, all the day long is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what they do all day around the throne of God. This is why when Isaiah is, is caught up and he's taken into the throne room of God, he walks in, he falls down, he covers his face. Why? Because you don't casually stroll into the presence of God as if God were your BFF. You don't, even, you don't understand who God is if that is the idea of, of, of God for you. This is, this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible sits over it all. reigns over it all. He's created it all. He owns it all. He's above it all. He stands above it all and he is separate or distinct or holy from it and you and I are not that. And more on that in a moment. Don't you also see God does letter C, God does speak. You notice God interacting with Moses here. God is not mute. And God speaks to you. God speaks to me the same way through His Spirit, by His Word. We talked about that this morning. We see God also supports. Notice what He says to Moses. He says, I'm coming down. I'm going to show myself strong. Why? So that the people who listen to you will know that I am the one who is speaking to you. Look at verse number 9. We'll see it. Look at verse number 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Lo, I am come unto thee in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe forever. It's a very interesting thing. You remember, remember one of Moses' very first questions? God, who am I that I should go back and speak to my brothers and sisters in Egypt? How are they going to know that I am doing what you asked me to do? They won't believe me. They'll reject me. Remember that? God, I can't do that. They'll reject me. And here's God saying, don't worry, Moses. I will support you. Don't worry, Moses. I, I, I've got your back. I'll show them that I am the one speaking through you to them. Incidentally, or, or rather, maybe not so incidentally, you see here in Moses the role of the pastor, the preacher, the prophet. And Moses' job, his role, his assignment was to say all that God said. And the people were to listen to what Moses said as if they were listening to God himself. Not, not because Moses is great, not because the preacher is great, but because God chooses the foolishness of, of preaching to confound the wise. I almost said the foolishness of peaching, which would also be rather foolish, but this would be the foolishness of preaching to confound the wise. Well, why? Because what we believe about God is God is above 
God reigns above. God is separate from. God condescends. How does God condescend? How does God come to us? How does God speak to us? He speaks to us through preaching, through the preaching of God's Word, which, by the way, is why when you look for a church, if you're looking for a church, which is why you should look for a place where the preacher is speaking what God has spoken. That's a, that's a, words matter. Preachers, ma preachers care about words. Okay, so I did not say look for a church where the preacher is speaking what God is speaking. As in continually, progressively revealing. No, I said look for a church where the preacher is preaching or speaking what God has spoken. It's sealed. It's signed. It's done. It's delivered to us in the canon of Scripture. There's nothing added, nothing taken away. This is what matters to us as a church. Sunday after Sunday, we gather together not to hear the latest ramblings or theories or, or soapbox opinions, but we gather Sunday after Sunday to be eager to listen to God. So we, we see last, the last letter here, we see God shows up. Verse 11, be ready on the third day. Verse 16, and it came to pass on the third day. Listen, God always shows up. Okay, you or I, we might miss appointments, but God has never missed an appointment. God always shows up. He always comes down. So here's the question then we started with, we'll end with. Does your response to that God match who we say our God is? Number two, our approach to God. What is our approach? It should be two things. It should be first, that we are careful. We are careful in our attitude. We are careful in our words. We are careful in what we say about him. We are careful in even how we engage in conversation with him. Have you ever, have you ever thought about that verse? We come boldly to the throne room of grace. Because sometimes you get, we trip at the very beginning of that. Oh, we can come boldly. We can come boldly into God's presence. But can you really come boldly into a place where there is nothing but a throne of grace? The only reason you can come boldly is because of grace. The only reason you get to enter is because God is gracious. Don't casually strut into the presence of God, demanding God to do what I say, give me what I ask, speak it into existence, believe and you will receive. That's, this is not a biblical concept. God is not your genie. March into the presence of God, demanding from God what you will. He's the God of the universe. You walk slowly into His presence. You walk carefully into His presence. You see also here this careful devotion. Devotion is seen in two ways. That the people were to keep a distance, and that if they did not keep a distance, there would be death. Devotion in two ways. The people were to keep a distance. If they did not keep a distance, there would be death. Let me say a word here to all the boys and girls. All the boys and girls in the room, look right here at me for a second. This is why when you are praying, it is appropriate when you pray. It is appropriate when your mom and dad pray. It is appropriate even when the preacher is praying. 
for you to bow your head and for you to close your eyes. Well, why? Because you have to? No. But because when you fold your hands and you bow your head and you close your eyes, that keeps you from getting distracted. Let me talk to mom and dad for a second. It's why when we pray, we should bow our heads and close our eyes. Because if you're scrolling while we're praying, then you're not listening. You're scrolling as you stroll into the presence of God. Like, hey, what's going on? God, I'm scrolling through my feed right now. You don't, you don't approach the presence of God that way. Why? Because God is big and mighty and awesome and immense and great and powerful and thunder and lightning. And if you come near to the mountain, what happens? You see this in other ways in the Bible. You remember the man Uzziah? In 1 Chronicles chapter number 13, the Lord tells them, do not touch the ark. The ark was uh, the presence of God that moved before them in that time. Don't touch the ark. If you touch the ark, you will be killed. You remember that? How many of you remember that, right? Okay. First Chronicles 13, the ark gets wobbly, begins to fall over. Zion sticks his hands out to catch the ark. What happens? And God strikes him dead. You ever been reading that in your family devotions? You're like, well, he was catching the ark. That was, he was doing that for God. Why did God do that? And you're like, uh... I don't know, let's keep reading, let's, go, let's move on past this part, right? Well, why does God do that? Here's why, because God is God and God said, don't touch it. And if you touch it, you die. And what did he do? He touched it. So what did God do? God killed him. We've heard a lot of theories about this, right? What, what one was, there was a, was a priestly order that was to be maintained. So he should have known better than to touch it inside of the priestly order. He should have known that he should have let it fall, then pick it up by the rods, that that's the way that it should have been handled. Uh, they had it on a wagon. The ark, the ark wasn't supposed to be on a wagon. It wasn't supposed to be carried by donkey all the way through to the battlefield. There's, there's all kinds of orders that were given for the way they should have managed it. So there's a part to be said that they should have known better. It's true. But I, I like this idea better. The fault of the, the, the fault is that in grabbing the ark, he thought his hand was holier than the ground that it would fall on. Well, that was the assumption, wasn't it? My hands are cleaner than the ground, so let me catch it to keep it from the ground. And yet, disobedience is not better than sacrifice. It's not better to disobey God. It's just worse to disobey God. In fact, God says, I'd rather, you, I'd rather you not sacrifice and obey than to sacrifice and disobey. I think we have this backwards thinking in our mind. In, in what way? In that we love to think well of ourselves and little of God. We love to think ourselves big and God small and manageable and pocket-sized. And don't worry, God, I know exactly what you ought to be doing right now. You see that over and over. You see it again in Leviticus chapter number 10. Nadab and Abihu, they bring fire to the Lord. They offer this, what the Bible calls strange fire in Leviticus 10. They offer that to the Lord. And what happens? They're struck dead. 
what do you mean? Wasn't, don't you think it was a good thing for them to offer sacrifice to the Lord, for them to make sure that the fires kept burning so sacrifices could be given? Don't you think that's better than nothing? And in God's opinion, no. Because sacrifice was not better than obedience. Obedience was best. Obedience was best. The same it is for you and for me. You break past the boundary. You go past the limit. You touch the mountain where the presence of God is descending. You die. Well, that doesn't sound very loving. No, no. Here is love in that God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah, that, that's love. Love is not God does what you think he should. Love is God does what God knows best, and God gets to do that. Why? It's a very simple answer. Are you ready? Because he is God, and you are not. Mind blown. God gets to do what he wants because he owns everything, because he has everything, because he needs nothing, so he gets to say, touch the mountain and you die. <gasps> How could he be loving if he would say that? No, he's loving in that he condescends to speak, to support, to show up, to separate, to bring people near. He calls them his very treasured possession. But God desires obedience from his people. And he desires obedience from you. And he desires obedience from me. So, the question we started with is the question we end with. Does our response to God match who we say our God is? If God is immense, and he is, and if God owns everything, and he does. And if God governs it all by his own will, and if God holds it all together by his own word, and he does. If God is perfect in his holiness, if God is absolute in his truth, if God is great in his nature and character, if this is who God is, and he is, then should not our response to that God be twofold. Believe and tremble. Believe and tremble. Always find it a tad bit interesting people who say things like, well, when I get to heaven, I got all kinds of questions I'm going to ask God about. Like, why didn't I get that promotion? Can I just tell you, when you get to heaven, you're not going to ask God about your promotion. You know what you're going to do when you get there? You're going to fall on your knees. And you're going to worship a big, great, good, awesome God. It's actually, it's actually arrogant of us to assume that we can casually stroll into the presence of God as if God is not big and great and strong and mighty and powerful. 
This is what he's showing the people of Israel. This is what he's showing the people of Israel. This is who I am. This is a very scary scene. Everybody should stay back because I'm condescending. I'm coming down. This is no small, trite, trivial matter. God is not to be trifled with. God is to be worshipped. God is to be exalted. God is to be praised. This is a, this is a foreign... Do I hear like this rattling? Is that, is that me? Is it me? Is it my microphone? Okay. This is foreign in our con- this is foreign in our world. This is these sorts of concepts of God, of who God. This is what shook the continents of all of Europe and America during the awakenings. And everyone's just preaching things like sinners in the hands of an angry God. Whoop! I don't have any room for an angry God. Well, what do we do with God if God's angry? Let's not, let's, not, let's not think about angry God. Let's think, Grandpa God, who gives us everything we want? Who does whatever we, who does whatever we ask? Let's think Genie God, who just gives us our wish. If this is not the God of the Bible. This is not who God is. And we reduce God, we minimize God, we shrink God, we make God small so we can make ourselves big. This is my favorite part i got to be done. This is my favorite part, the end of the book of Job. Job goes on for like 38 chapters of everybody telling Job. It's a a funny scene because Job really, for the most part, all throughout Job's trial, Job is pretty quiet. And then Job finally does speak up, and he's kind of like, you know what, I kind of would like an answer, God. And then immediately, the next chapter, chapter 38, God shows up, right? And God says, stand up, Job, and answer me like a man, right? And Job goes, puts two hands over his mouth. Why? Because one hand was not going to be enough, right? Job was both hands over his mouth. And God says to Job, who, who are you? I'm God. Who are you? And Job's like, I don't, I don't have anything to say now. I don't, I don't, I don't, want, I don't even want, I don't have nothing to say. You're God. Do what you want. But that, that's a lot worse than Job didn't get the promotion. Like, you understand that? It's God showed up and Job would just, and then God goes on for three chapters and he says things like, Job, can you tell the rain where to fall? Because I can. Job, do you know the depths of the sea? Because I do. Job, does does the snow, does it answer to you? Because it answers to me. Job, does the lightning, does it report to duty at your feet? Because it shows up every evening and asks me where it should strike. Job, Job, can you count the stars? Because I named them all. You can't even count them. I can name them. You can't even name your grandchildren. God can name the stars, right? Well, I'm like, uh, what kid is that? Hey, you, number three, come here, come here. I mean, do something for me, right? And God knows the stars. He knows them by name. They belong to him. And God goes down this list for three chapters of who are you, Job, and who am I? At the end of three chapters, Job goes, but you're right, God, my response was wrong. And then that whole thing, I'm like, well, what about his friends? His friends were just, I mean, they were just going on and on and on about all this. I mean, God, get, get them. 
And yet God was concerned about Job's response to him. Same thing happened in Exodus 19. If God is who we say he is, if God possesses the characters and attributes that we say he does, if God sits eternal above it all, if God has power, if the waves answer to him, if the sun answers to him, if cancer answers to him, if job promotions and elections, if those things answer to him, if the nations bow before him, if all of the earth is his, then what should our response to that God be except to worship and tremble and believe? That's the only right response then, isn't it? That's the only correct response. Because He's God and we are not. <laughs> 